As he is worthy and as he is the living word of God, would you please take your scripture with me to Hebrews chapter 3. I would invite you to give your attention to Hebrews 3, verses 16 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3 is a warning passage we've been walking through for the last four weeks. And it concludes today in these four verses. Please look as I read from the word of the Lord. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Would he add his blessing to its reading this morning? You can be seated, and some children can be dismissed to children's church. <clears throat> As I mentioned, we're finishing this chapter, which is one of the five very vivid warning passages of Hebrews. It warns us and reminds us what it is to be and to remain in the sheepfold of Christ. I'm giving for this sermon a title, which is simply part two of last week. Beware of deceit and unbelief in our midst. So that you know where we're heading, that title, the first two parts, we dealt with last week. Beware of deceit and unbelief. And this week, we're going to address the third part, in our midst. The warning is take care. And from this chapter, we get the why, the how, and the who. Why must we take care? The answer is in verse 13. So that none be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Then the question is, how will we take such care? Also in verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it's today, before it's too late. Then today's issue is, who must we exhort so that they don't fall away? And the answer is, in verses 16 through 19, those who are in the congregation of professing believers, those who are of the quote-unquote people of faith. They should be exhorted because they are in danger of falling away. Is this warning from the Exodus analogy, or as the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95, is this warning relevant for us today? Is it appropriate for an author of a New Testament epistle, a letter of instruction, to be given to us about the possibility of falling away. Maybe you can see in your interpretation of Scripture, like I get it in the Old Testament, and I even get it in Psalms, but I'm not sure how that relates to us. Should it be a New Testament epistle? Is the warning relevant? to any New Testament congregation of people who profess faith. Let me emphasize the relevance with a couple of statistics. In 1993, 90% of Americans claimed at that time to be Christian. 1993. Yet today, while the number has drastically decreased, 60% of Americans claim Christianity. Now, I'm confident that those statistics are grossly, grossly overinflated. 
But we have to ask ourselves the reason for the inflated statistic, or the answer. When a poll is being taken and your neighbor is being asked, are you a Christian? Perhaps the reason they say yes is, mom and dad are Christians, I must be a Christian. It's what we do. Or perhaps they would say, it's the prominent religion of our culture in America, so yeah, I'm American. I'm Christian. A myriad of other things might lead to their answer. However, it is very probable that enduring faith in Christ alone might not be the reason 90% of Americans, or yet today 60% of Americans, would say they are Christian. However, identifying a concern in our culture is not my interest for this congregation this morning. You see, we could pretty easily dismiss the credibility of 60% of our neighbors who say, I'm Christian, by simply asking, do you go to church? In fact, less than 35% of Americans say they attend church regularly. So we would say, oh, well, there you go. The number isn't 90, the number isn't 60, the number is closer to 35. Well, again, the point for our time in this congregation is greater than even that 35. The question from our text is what percentage of the congregation will remain believing Christians all the way to the end? The question that comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews is, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Those who heard in Egypt. The call of salvation. And believed the call. I'm going to get to that later. And obeyed the call. Is it possible for those who had said, I am of the congregation of faith, and who had once believed and obeyed to be in danger? That's the question. Not the question of how much of the 90% of our culture, not the question of how much of the 60%, not even the question necessarily of how much of the 35%, but most specifically, how much of this congregation will remain believing and therefore obeying Christians to the end. To help magnify that truth from Scripture, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So I, I don't want to preach that text, but I do want to make sure you understand. You have a group of people standing in front of Jesus Christ, the final judge, standing in front of Jesus Christ, the final judge, and they will say, Kurios, Kurios, Master, King, Lord, Ruler, Sovereign. They will, they will say all the right things. Kurios, Kurios. Not everyone who says such will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so I, I just need you to understand, we're not talking about Muslims or, or, or Buddhists or Hindu. We're talking about people who say that Jesus is the Lord. Not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and then will Christ declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So the group in view for Jesus' teaching are those people who will confess correctly the identity of Jesus Christ. To help us walk through this text of Hebrews, I want to accent the three questions. That's what we have in Hebrews 16, 17, or 3, 16, 17, and 18. The first is, if you'll notice in verse 16, a question of identity. Who? The second is, in verse 17, a question of their conclusion and what happened. And the third is, a question of final judgment in verse 18. So the author of Hebrews is using, coincidentally, a very Pauline form of teaching. It's called teaching through rhetorical question. You do it to your children all the time. <laughs> when I left this morning, 
Did I tell you to clean your room? Question mark. Everyone knows the answer. <laughs> Asking question as a form of teaching a student who already knows the answer is effective because it helps for them to hear themselves admit the answer. So that's what the author is doing for us. You might think there's no way the once-believing congregation would be in danger. Did the once-believing congregation who faithfully obeyed God and practiced the Passover and walked away from the most powerful army and ruler in the world once believe yet fall away? And we, the students, go, well, yes, they did do that. We learn by hearing ourselves say what we might have presuppositionally thought was impossible. The New Testament book, using the analogy of the Exodus example so that we will understand the brevity, the seriousness of this warning. <coughs> Let's pray and then walk through three of the questions. Father, I pray to you that you would guide us in these truths. I pray that your spirit would minister to our confession. And that, Lord, ultimately, as this congregation spends this appointed moment in this text, that please, Father, we would be, from this point forward, grown into a healthier stewardship of heeding this warning and therefore doing congregational care for each other. Remove then from us the niceties of caring for each other. Remove from us the legalistic obligation of being dis interested in each other. Remove, Father, everything but the Christ-like commission of caring for sheep, loving each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start the three questions with the first one in verse 16. Hebrews 3, verse 16. The first question is a question of identity. <coughs> who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So, the author is taking Psalm 95, verse 8. David takes Psalm 95, verse 8, as a warning to his generation, the analogy of the Exodus generation, and the author of Hebrews is doing the same. Now, the author of Hebrews, just look at verse 16. There's two sentences. The first sentence represents interpretation. The second sentence represents commentary, okay? So, today, here's the interpretation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as at Meribah, Psalm 95, 8, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. These two identifications, Meribah and Massa, represent days of hardship. In fact, they're so analogous of hardship you don't necessarily have to interpret the locations geographically. They are simply analogies of days during the Exodus when the people who had once displayed belief are challenged to doubt. Now, the commentary. So the second half is not a quote, but the second half of verse 16 is the author saying, was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Psalm 95 says, hey, it's those people in Meribah and Massa. Author of Hebrews says, just to be clear, those people on the Exodus <coughs> led by Moses. What was the way out of Egypt? I went back this week and enjoyed reading Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is the story of the inauguration of the Passover. God gives word to Moses, <coughs> tell the people to do this and this and this and this and this. And namely, at the center of it, sacrifice a lamb and take a branch, dip it in the blood of the lamb and spread it across the 
header, the top of your door. That shall be a sign that when death comes to the land, <clears throat> the death angel will pass over the house covered by the blood. The people heard the word of God to take one of their animals, slaughter it, and spread the blood on their house. Now, that sounds like faith, doesn't it? The word of the Lord came to them, they received it, and did as they were told. Then, in the morning, after death had struck so severely in Egypt, they begin the exit, and they walk out. Now, we studied Exodus, and we know that there's grumbling ahead. Nevertheless, what was the way out of Egypt? It was faith. It was faith in the promise of God. I have, namely, in Exodus, God says, I have heard your cries, and I will deliver you from this oppression and take you to a land which I have promised. And the people said, we believe you. They practice the Passover, they exercise the instruction, and they walk out of the land. So, when the author of Hebrews cites that example, he is, in fact, saying those people who once believed fell away. And he's using that as an example to this congregation of why it is so important that we exhort each other. The main point is that if the congregation that faithfully followed the instruction of God in the Passover and the Exodus departure did not escape the deceit of sin and therefore its punishment, then those who had once claimed trust in Jesus but then turn against Jesus should not expect to be spared. The warning of the passage is take care. You see it? Look at verse 12. This is what we must feel. The warning, take care. Now that's going to continue all the way through chapter 4, almost to the end. Take care. That's our warning. Hear the Spirit of the Lord. Take care. Brothers, The warning is to take care. Why? What, what are we so vulnerable to? We saw it last time. The deceitfulness of sin. And who is it that must take care because of the deceitfulness of sin? It is, in fact, the congregation of assembled believers who once professed faith in Christ. What I want to say to end this question is this. Would you identify with me that there is not an individual in the room who has yet to realize the fullness of their salvation? Admittedly, the question is meant to get your attention. Because you went, oh, what did he just say? Let me explain what salvation fully realized is. When Jay led us, uh, I'm thankful for the way that he led us carefully through the, the confession and the assurance and then prayer. And he prayed, especially spoke especially regarding communion, about the ministry of communion in its past, its presence, and its future anticipation. He, he brought to mind the past, present, and future. Let me do the same thing. What does it mean that we are saved? Well, it has past, it has present, and it has future implication. In the past, Colossians tells us that our sin was taken out of our way and nailed to the cross. That's the past. Salvation. Salvation from sin's punishment. The record of grievances, of injustices, of rebellion, of sin that stood against us. Nailed to the cross. How about presently? Is there an application of salvation for us presently? Absolutely. We have been delivered from the bondage of sin to newness of life. So there's not only deliverance from sin's punishment, but there is deliverance from sin's power. 
So is therefore salvation complete? It is not. We are longing and looking forward to a day when our salvation will finally produce salvation from sin's presence. Once we are held in the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and safely home, then and only then will we no longer be vulnerable to sin's presence. Therefore, there is no one in the room who has fully realized all of the benefits of their salvation. We are yet waiting. So who are those? Was it not the ones who had once believed, but then fell away before their rest? Look at verse 17. Let's apply the second question. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So this is a question of conclusion. What happened to those who believed once, but then didn't believe at the end? What happened to them? Well, because of God's anger being provoked, for 40 years they were kept out of the land of rest and fell in the wilderness. So here, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95. David is using Psalm 95 to give us the analogy of the Exodus. And Psalm 95, verse 10, the rhetorical question, with whom was God angry for 40 years? The emphasis of this question is the length of time. Who was it who did not receive in all of their days the land of rest? Those who did not believe. And they fell in the wilderness. They died in unbelief. Author of Hebrews answers the question, the Lord was angry with those who sinned. The word sin is meant to call our attention to the evil that they practice when they get to the border of the land and the spies say, ooh, looks daunting. And they say, what? We don't think God will do as he said he would do. Israel's called to enter the land but refused to do so because they feared death. If we go in there and face these giants, we'll die. And do you know from Numbers, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, do you know from Numbers, they vote and decide they'll pick a new scout to lead them, they say explicitly, back to Egypt. What a faithless, pessimistic, doubting people. All right, this Moses guy, he's got it all wrong. There's giants there. Let's, uh, let's nominate a leader who leads us southwest. <laughs> That's crazy. That's what they did. I told you before, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> These people who once believed and once wandered, for two years they've been wandering toward the promise. Following after the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things not yet seen, say, whoa, this promise must not be faithful. And they fell in the wilderness. I want you to think about... I, I, I uh, want to be clear. As I wrote this down, I thought, oh, I hope this doesn't sound condemning. I do not want it to be correction. I, I do want it to be... Um, I want it to be formative, but not, it's not meant to be corrective. Think about the way that I sometimes might share my testimony. Okay, so we have... That's Christianese, by the way. There might be some people in the room who are like, share your testimony. What? You got, you got a court summons? Okay, sort of. Um... And so that might be a little bit Christianese. But if you don't know what I mean, sometimes we invite people who profess that they're of Christ to come up and explain why they confess such a thing. And so sometimes, I'm, I'm guilty of this. If, in fact, I, I'm almost sure that um, it was eight years ago last Sunday, the first time I stood here and preached, and I'm almost sure that that weekend someone asked me to share my testimony and I shared with them a story from grade school when on a Sunday my Sunday school teacher told me a lesson about David Livingston and I went home and asked my mother, what must I do 
to be saved. As David Livingston left England and went to Africa to tell people how to be saved, it must be important. What do I have to do to be saved? And that's probably the story I shared almost eight years ago when I first met all of you. So I'm, I'm not meaning to condemn. However, I would correct that, and I would try to correct us <clears throat> for future application. When I stand before you and say, when I was, I think it, it was in the fall, it, I was either six or seven. I know I was, I was repeating first grade for the third time, so it was either six or seven. <laughs> and when I tell that account, it's like, the, Egypt, it's like the, the, the Jewish people telling the account of the day when God said, practice the Passover, and the next morning, walk away from bondage. And the, the Jewish people could have told that story, but that story had nothing to do with the conclusion, did it? It did not guarantee them a conclusion just because they started in the right direction. That, that's my point. I, I do think that we are accidentally, I believe accidentally, I do think that we're accidentally vulnerable or susceptible to counting yesterday's faith as sufficient for every need. And that's not the case. If our faith is genuine, it will remain faithful in every challenge. They heard God speak. They saw the work of his hand. They knew his will. They started out in the right direction, but ultimately they refused to obey. Listen to Numbers 14.35. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end. They fell in the wilderness. So it answers the second rhetorical question. Who's in danger? The people who once believed. That includes us right now. That's us right now. What happened to them when they, when they did not believe? They perished in their unbelief. Third rhetorical question, verse 18. A question of faithful judgment. <clears throat> Will God likewise judge the wicked? Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? The full verdict of sin. Quoted from Psalm 95, verse 11. The author here merges it together. You notice there's not two sentences. In verse 18, it's just one sentence. However, he merges it together with the comma. To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but, here's the answer, to those who were disobedient. He didn't experience the promise of the land that had been pledged to Abraham and his offspring. It is important for us to note that God's faithful judgment from the very beginning made it clear that no unbelieving descendant of Abraham gets the land. I, I cannot say that more simply than the very first generation. They get to the border. Yes, the land of promise to Abraham, and he's grandpa. Yes, but you don't believe. So you'll fall in the wilderness. I can't make it clearer. In fact, God swore that they would not enter the land. This means there would not be another chance. As long as it's called today, exhort one another so that 200... Uh, no, my math is wrong because I wrote it down last week. Now I've got to remember. Two years. Somebody, somebody do the math. Two, it doesn't matter. Let's move on. Two plus years. They're just a few days over two years in faithful walking toward the promise. As long as it's called today. But at this point, when God swore, it wasn't called today. It was called too late. What about, what about your moment of weakness? What about your moment of despair? I might 
presume that there are people in the room who are going through things that are heartbreaking things, challenging things, keep you awake at night things, wake you up early in the morning things, cause you to be quiet and distant from loved ones things. And you might in that moment say, I thought being a child of God would be different than this. Where is he now? Can I trust? And there's an urgent need in that moment as long as it's today. But if that moment is instead the one we're reading about, too late, not today, then we're dealing with the question of God's faithful judgment to those who do not presently believe. God swore. Verse 19. So we see the congregation was unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. It was the congregation of people who had been displaying belief while imperfectly, ultimately, by the faithful judgment of God, with which he swore they would not enter his rest. Because of? The author summarizes it. In verse 19, it's a very important word. It's the last word of the chapter, unbelief. To this point, their sin has been called hard-heartedness. Chapter 3, verse 8, 13, 15. It's been called the sin of testing God. Chapter 3, verse 9. The sin of going astray, chapter 3, verse 10. Sin of rebellion, 3, 15 and 16. Just sin, 3, 17. Or disobedience, 3, 18. But here, all of that is summarized in one powerful word, unbelief. The wilderness generation ultimately did not believe and therefore did not obey. Congregation, you need to hear that perseverance is certainty when one trusts the God of promises. Perseverance is certainty when one trusts the God of promises. The warning from Hebrews is to a congregation of people who had once professed trust in Christ, but now were guilty of unbelief. The people of the congregation are warned to take care, lest in the end it become obvious that there's an unbelieving heart. Now to this point, I would invite your attention back up to verse 13. I hope that what you see is the warning is relevant to us. I know that there, there are certain ways to interpret Scripture where you might go to the Exodus story and go, that has almost nothing to do with us. That's a different people, different administration of the Spirit, of course. So how is that relevant? And then you could also take Psalm 95 and go, yeah, I get it. David's kind of worked up about it. He doesn't want his people to fall away. And you could explain away the warning by saying, that's Old Testament warning. But then in comes the Spirit of God who gives us, by His own breathing, Hebrews chapter 3. And I, I, I need you to understand this warning is relevant to us. So what will we do? What will we do? It's in verse 13. Because the warning, because the danger is real, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. I want to spend the rest of the time applying this. Quite simply, you notice we've gone through 16 through 19. The verses are done. I want to apply this in a way that my prayer is that from this moment forward, Emmanuel Baptist Church becomes a little healthier without ever going back. 
had a chance to meet with a group of friends this week and I asked them the question. I was so glad that they were able to give me an answer. I said, how would you grade the soul care of the congregation at Emmanuel? I said, feel free to be honest. And the grade that was given by that dozen friends, which I agree with, was not A's and it was not B's. And again, I, I have no ground to stand on to tell you that's a you problem. That's a we problem. I'm, I'm with you in that. I, I grieve the grade, but I don't disagree with it. But there's grace for us not to go on repeating that sin. We can grow in this. So I want to finish today by giving us some pointers for growing. This week as I considered this, I came across a book written in 1538. 1538. A man, a Puritan by the name of Martin Bucer, published a book with this title, Concerning the True Care of Souls. Caught my attention. I have purchased copies for all the elders. In his book, Bucer defines the members of the congregation as those whose office and work are for the general good of the whole body and its members. So he defines you as people who are here for the good and the benefit of the group. It's important to think that way. He argues that soul care is the work of the whole congregation. Now, let me give you three introductory points that he makes in the 16th century about what should be church identity. Okay? Let me give you these three from his work. First, you must know the Christian congregation has a total and particular unity among itself. I could just say it in modern language. There is no potential for this outside of here. That's what I mean. The Christian congregation has a total and particular unity amongst themselves. Why? They are one body, partaking of one spirit, one calling as being called to one hope and awaiting one salvation. They must indeed share together a kindness and most faithful brotherhood, fellowship, and unity. I spend a lot of time here, but also away from here. And I can guarantee you this call to exhort has no potential outside of here. Uh, I mean, I know there's a lot of things. Like, like your sports team isn't this. Your book club isn't this. Your graduating class, your class reunion isn't this. This is particular and total unity. Mm. I think he gets that right. Second thing he says is this. The fellowship which Christians have is not just total and particular, but also it is the truest and most vivid unity. The truest and most vivid unity. He goes on to write this. Everyone in the body demonstrates the highest zeal in assisting one another in all things. Everyone in Christ is always affected by the feelings of others. Do, do you rejoice with those that rejoice? Do you weep with those that weep? Do you bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? The work of all Christians is always geared to the general well-being of the church of Christ. 
Now, if, you, if you're following, you might have got there and went, what? That sounds pretty um, that was selfish <laughs> or, or inward perceiving. Let me read the whole sentence. The work of all Christians is always geared to the general well-being of the church of Christ. In order that the number of Christians would increase and that those who are already Christians should grow in faith. You must think first about us in Christ in order that the us would grow and us would grow. But we don't grow nor grow thinking about something other than the congregation of Jesus Christ. Number three, Christians are to look after one another most faithfully so that no one among them should be lacking. Everyone is to be cared for in a brotherly manner according to their need. Where the churches of Christ are rightly ordered and have proper form of government, no toleration is given to anyone who does not want to do anything useful and seeks only to live off the labor of others. There's no such thing as calling yourself part of the church if you become content to say, I will live off the gospel ministry of others but not minister the gospel to others. Those were a blessing to me from 500 years ago. But I also thought as I sat at my desk, how do we do this practically? I mean, what are those baby steps? Let's not assume that we can get to this point, magnify the need, say, hey, the warning's real, care for each other, exhort one another as long as it's called today, and then just assume that we know how to do that. How do we edify and encourage each other practically? How do we minister this way to one another every day? And forgive me, I, I'm going to be really selfish. I, I don't mean, how do you minister to every Christian on the planet every day? I don't mean that. I don't mean that. I'm not saying that we are not others mindful. One another includes others. But I'm not calling you to think about the church on the planet. I'm calling you to mindfulness of this one. The one to which you belong and the one in which you eat. This one. I want to provide a few pathways for orienting mindfulness of this Christward direction toward each other and toward spiritual maturity. What, what I want to do is just give us some pointers on how to obey Hebrews 10.24. Think of each other and how to provoke each other to love and good works. I just want to give you a couple pointers to do that. I think we're going to get to Hebrews 10, and we're going to start getting some application of what we're reading right here in Hebrews 3. How do we think of each other? On your drive, on your drive to church, are you like racking your brain? Are you praying? Spirit of God, lead me to those conversations where I can say gospel-saturated, Christ-word God things that will provoke my brothers and sisters united together in Christ's body to love and good works. Or are you thinking, stupid snow? Why do we live here? Or are you thinking, whose kids are in the back? Oh, that's right, my spouse's. What are you thinking on your way to the assembly? Are you thinking, how can I today heed the warning, exhort each other to love and good works? Think about how to exhort each other to better. To passion and function. How do we do this? You remember from last week, this exhort one another has the tone of encouraging their faith. 
Here's what I want to say, first of all, friends, and I, th- I, think, I think it's maybe easy for me to fall into this default of thinking soul care of the congregation means that when I see them do bad, I'll tell them that's bad. I think it's easy for us to become corrective at the bottom of a cliff. Oh, brother or sister, I see that you stumbled and fell off the cliff. You know that's bad, right? Yes, I know it's bad. Thank you for saying something. But I think the exhort one another, the encouraging of their faith, the thinking carefully, the praying earnestly, how do I provoke them to love and good works? I think we take ourselves from the bottom of the cliff to the top where the grassy plain is and we say to each other, stay in the love and faithfulness of God. Don't fall prey to the deceit of sin over there. But delight yourself here in the Lord. Isn't he good and faithful and kind? Has there been another God like our God? Here are his ways of faithfulness to me. You probably share some of those same expressions of blessing. At the top of the cliff. So, in that tune, on your handout... Josh and I worked through this late in the week. We just gave three real simple categories. On the back of the handout, first one is God. And I would summarize. I give four bullet points to each of the categories. I do not mean to insult you or turn you away from the simplicity. I simply want to show you how every day it can be to encourage each other to love and good works. The first category is God. The Trinitarian God who is faithful to us in all his ways. You should say that to each other every day, as long as it's today. Second category, church. You should share with each other the blessings and means of encouraging exhortation. Christian living, the way of discipling, that we are in fact to the praise of his glory. I'm sorry, displaying. The way of displaying the fact that we are to the praise of his glory, the spirit of Christ in us has brought to life all good things. Good friendships, good marriage, good parenting. Simply say the necessary things to exhort each other's faith, as long as it's today. I was at a conference about three years ago and I was walking into the back of a huge assembly and I bumped into a man who we had served together in a church 20 years ago. He was a deacon there and I was on pastoral staff. His name's John. And it was sweet to catch up with him. I haven't seen him in over a decade. And, and we, had, we had worked together. We had run together. We had labored together. Gone through some stuff together. And so we caught up. I was glad to see him at that conference. He was glad to see me. Asked about family. Conversation had gone on for probably 15 minutes. And then John stopped the conversation, kind of awkwardly, like there was no natural. Aren't you afraid of the, the natural flows of conversation? He wasn't. He stopped the conversation. And he said, how's your walk with the Lord? Come on, John. I just told you I'm pastoring a church in Wausau. I just told you I'm here at a conference. I mean, let's just assume everything's fine. See, that's not the point. How's your walk with the Lord? Uh, I don't think you're allowed to ask other Christians that. I, I gave him my answer. I gave him my answer, and I said, good, good. I mean, not perfect. Here are the areas that's a blessing. Here are the areas that needs growth. How's your relationship with your wife? That's enough. I'm out of here, right? How's your relationship with your wife? I told him. He said, you know, I've spent almost all my life in church and my relationship with God wasn't good. My walk with the Lord was not good. And my marriage was a disaster. And no one in church ever asked me either one. When's the last time someone asked you that? More importantly, when's the last time you asked someone that? 
the warning is to us. It applies to us. The danger is real. The need for faith endurance is true. And the blessing of belonging in a congregation is a blessing from God for this very thing. Perseverance to the end is necessary of true salvation. The analogy of the wilderness generation reveals that they failed to enter God's earthly rest. They died outside of the promise. How much more terrible would it be to fail to enter the heavenly rest of Christ Jesus? I told you last week, and I want to repeat again, Christ is our way safely home. He's better than Moses. That's the point of Hebrews right here. He's better than Moses. You see, the commands of Moses were don't steal from your neighbor, don't covet your neighbor, don't take your neighbor's wife. Jesus comes and gives a better commandment. You remember what it is? A new commandment I give you, that you love each other. Christ gave that commandment. The new commandment to our congregation is a command of our Lord and Savior to do soul care as a vital provision for our perseverance in faith. Let's pray. Father, you give the increase. Where your word is preached, it does not return void. I, I cling tightly to those promises that the preaching of your word, this, this, this clear instruction, that we hear the warning and that we engage in the exhortation and care of each other's souls for the praise of your glory, that we heed that today. And that from this moment forward, this wouldn't be just a sermon that shapes this one day or maybe tomorrow or, or another day, but that, that truly the identity of our congregation would be matured in this instruction. That the grade we might give would resemble the work of sanctification in us and be increasing. That we would grow up in Christ as a congregation, loving each other more earnestly and delighting in your new command to love one another. In Christ's name, we all, as one people, pray together. Amen. Please stand with me and let's sing.